Well, American citizenship is a hot topic these days. <clears throat> what makes one a legitimate citizen? What are the requirements? For that matter, what are the benefits and privileges of citizenship? Talk about things like the American dream, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of morality. Should those who are not official citizens also gain the benefits and privileges of citizenship based on certain criteria? Well, we celebrated our nation and our citizenship of this nation earlier this month on the 4th. We gather together to enjoy each other's company. We eat together. We play together. And my wife's family visited the beach together. We celebrate with fireworks. Such national holidays and perhaps times when we travel abroad are helpful reminders to rejoice that we are citizens of this nation that affords us great privileges. Let me ask you, though, how often do you consider the fact that you are a citizen of heaven? That is a large part of Paul's consideration in our text for this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 if you haven't. That's where we're going to find our text. Our focus in that text is going to be on verses 20 and 21, but I'm going to read the whole chapter to you this morning for context. Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else is a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 
For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true. Do sanctify us this morning by your truth. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In these last two verses where we're focusing, verses 20 and 21, Paul expresses the hope of the believer and the future coming of our king. This hope of the believer is rooted in our heavenly citizenship. Now there are just two points for the outline. The first point is this. As citizens of heaven, we hope for the return of our king. That's in verse 20. Second point is, as citizens of heaven, we hope for the redemption of our king. That's verse 21. We hope for the return of our king and the redemption of our king. Yes, I like to alliterate. I was taught that way in school, and I can't get away from it. Well, let's look at that first point. As citizens of heaven, we hope for the return of our king. Look again at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, whenever you see a four in the text, you should know that the author is drawing a conclusion based on something that he's already said. Here, Paul is urging the believers at Philippi to follow his example. That's in verse 17. As opposed to following the example of those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 18. Paul's example is all of what he said earlier in the passage. He was urging the believer's fidelity to Christ, using his own life as an illustration. He had been made to lose everything from an earthly perspective to follow Christ, and he was okay with that. Not only was he okay with losing everything, but he'd also made Christ his pursuit in everything. That repeat of that that phrase, I press on. To Christ, Paul was of a value which surpassed everything else, and by comparison, everything else to him was refuse. Paul says, in effect, this is in my heart, and it ought to be in your heart as well. Do not listen to those who teach otherwise. Do not be like them. They are dogs. They are deceitful workers. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their appetite. Their minds are set on earthly things. Let that not be said of you. Our station is higher. Our station is greater. Our station is more noble. We are citizens of heaven. Do you hear the contrast? They are citizens of the earth with their minds set on things of the earth. We are citizens of heaven with our hearts and our minds set on the things of heaven. And to the point of this whole chapter on Jesus in particular, we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. Before we continue on to the meat of this first point, I want to develop this idea of citizenship that Paul is talking about. It's crucial for us understanding these verses properly. Citizenship was as important in antiquity as it is today. Rome was the world power in their day, thus Roman citizenship was highly prized. People often went through great lengths to acquire Roman citizenship, even paying a great deal of money. 
There were many special privileges of Roman citizenship, some of which Paul called upon during the course of his ministry. One mentioned in my reading involved a special status that was granted to Philippi. This is the city to which Paul is writing. They were identified as a Roman colony, which granted the citizens Roman citizenship automatically and tax exemption. That's kind of nice, right? This would be like one of us as Americans going to live in a spot of land governed by the U.S. in the country of France or Russia. Anyone? No? Okay. All right. But if we were to go, we were, we were to live in this area, um, wherever this area is, in some foreign nation, and just because we're, we're citizens of the United States of America, we don't have to pay that country anything. We don't have to abide by their laws. We have our own thing going on. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. Yes, Paul says, you are living here on earth, and yet you are citizens of heaven with all the rights and privileges thereof. You should not regard yourselves as citizens of the world. That would be dangerous. That would be to live as those enemies of the cross of Christ that Paul just spoke of. We are to think of ourselves as citizens of heaven. Let me ask you again, how often do you do that? How often do you think of yourself as a citizen of heaven? How different might your life be if, as a part of your daily consideration, every time you got up out of the bed in the morning and put your feet down on the floor, you thought, I am a citizen of heaven. As I mentioned earlier, it's so much easier when we have our national holidays or when we travel abroad and see how comparatively better it is to live in America. It's easier to rejoice that we're citizens of this nation. But how much more should we give attention to boasting in our heavenly citizenship? In reality, we have a national holiday every Sunday morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we do every Sunday morning. As we gather together. We proclaim his excellencies. Again, come praise and glorify our God, right? And as citizens of heaven, we are always strangers in a foreign land. Thus, we are to live that way with respect to the world. After Peter says this about us being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, he goes on further in chapter 2 and says, I urge you then as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your souls. Don't get caught up in the fleshly, immoral behavior of the world around you. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the the Gentiles. Keep a good testimony with unbelievers. And he says, submit to every human institution. No rebellions against the state, unless, of course, they're trying to prompt you to do something contrary to God's will. That is how you live as citizens of heaven in a foreign land. Now, this concept as a believer of a believer as an alien in the world is not unique to Peter. It's also the testimony held out before us as an example of the people of faith listed in Hebrews chapter 11. It says there, all these, referring to those that they just mentioned in the hall of faith, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them at a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Did you hear that? All of those died in faith, certainly not a perfect faith, but faithful nonetheless. And they were referred to later as an illustration of faith to subsequent generations precisely because they lived their life and their day as citizens of heaven. They obeyed God rather than men, even when it cost them their lives on the basis of their heavenly citizenship. They abstained from sin and folly on the basis of their heavenly citizenship. I love what it says about Moses, that he chose to endure affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin as a member of the Egyptian court there. They left all that they had and all that they knew to follow the will of God in light of their heavenly citizenship. Does that describe any of you? Our heavenly citizenship ought to describe, ought to be a part of our daily consideration. At the end of your life, will others recount the ways in which you've lived on earth as a citizen of heaven? Will they even know that you're a citizen of heaven? Or will they just look at you as simply a good citizen of the world? And how much is that really worth? Getting back to our main point as citizens of heaven, we look forward to the return of our kin. Look, look again at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now people sometimes ask the question, maybe you're thinking the same this morning, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know that I'm a citizen of heaven? Well, Paul gives us a major clue in this verse. In this verse, he points out one of the primary characteristics of every true believer, and that is hope. Again, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior. The word translated here, eagerly wait, in the original means to wait for something eagerly. It is to look expectantly for some future event. I like the way one author put it. He says the verb here expresses concentrated eagerness and persistence of expectation. It suggests an eye detached from every other object to watch only for him when he comes in the fullness of his office. This word is used three times in Romans 8 to describe the anxious longing of both humanity as well as creation itself for the end times. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly, that's our same word, for the revealing of the sons of God. You guys know that creation itself is waiting for the end times? It's looking forward to Jesus' return. Creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not on its own, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but we also... But also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly, same word, for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he also sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly, same word, we wait eagerly for it. 
In another place, it is used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it says this, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear for a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. It is inherent in our salvation to have an eager longing and anxious desire for the return of Jesus Christ. That is a part of who we are as a result of the new birth a result of having the new life of Jesus within us, of being a part of the true vine. This new life produces in us not only a love for him, but also a longing to see him. Faith, hope, and love are three constant characteristics of the believer, without which you cannot say that you are in the faith. I love what is said of the church in 1 Thessalonians. I want you to turn there with me just for a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just a couple of books Ahead, First Thessalonians chapter 1, as often happened to Paul when he visited the city of Thessalonica to proclaim the gospel, he faced persecution, so much so that he and his companions had to flee. However, he was so concerned for this church that he sent Timothy back to see what happened, and the report from Timothy about the church made Paul rejoice, and so he writes this letter back to them to express his joy. And this is the testimony that the church had from the region surrounding them concerning their faith. After having received the gospel from Paul, in the midst of persecution, Paul leaves. The church is still being persecuted. And yet this is what is said about them by other regions. Look at verse 6. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 You also became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, these people were idol worshipers, and everybody knew it about them. And yet, when the gospel came to them, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Lord opened their hearts to believe, there was a clear transformation of their hearts and lives. They turned to God from idols. That's a perfect picture of repentance. Turning to God away from everything else. Away from all the idols of your life. And to wait for his son from heaven. So that's what they knew about them. That's what everyone around them understood by looking at this group of believers. That they were turning to God when they were once looking at idols. And that they were waiting for Jesus to come back from heaven. Again, when others describe you, they describe you as those who are waiting for the son of the chewing living God to return from heaven. Do people know that about you? Do they see you as one in whom there is hope? Not just some optimistic, empty, hope for the best kind of attitude, but a rock-solid, confident assurance, anxiously desiring the return of Jesus Christ from heaven. Do they understand that your confidence in him is such that you believe that his return will fix everything that is wrong with this world? Is that even in your heart? 
There was a movie that I saw quite some time ago. It's an older movie. I can't remember what the name of it is. I think, I think it might have been the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, but I, I might just have that in my mind for some reason. But anyway, there was this character who was like a family member of one of the main characters, and this guy carried around a bottle of Windex everywhere he went. <laughs> Because he believed that Windex was the solution for everything. And so he would literally use Windex to fix everything. I think somebody got a cut at some point in the movie, and he took out his bottle of Windex. I don't know where he got it from, but he took out this bottle of Windex and started squirting it on the guy's hand. He's like, you'll, you'll be good after you get the Windex. Because he believed that the Windex would cure it. That was a cure-all for everything. Well, for the believer, the citizen of heaven, you know what our Windex is? It's Jesus returning. Because we believe, we know, we have a confident assurance, that blessed assurance that we sing of, that all we need, all I need right now is for Jesus to come back. If you want to know if you're a Christian, you won't find the answer simply by showing up Sunday after Sunday, or by coming to the church potluck, or just by having your name on a roll in church. If you want to know if you are a Christian, measure your faith by this. Do you have an anxious longing, a desire to see Jesus Christ return from heaven for you? Is that in your heart? Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In case it's not clear already, notice that the emphasis with respect to our eternal destiny is on Jesus It's not on heaven in general. The world has a concept of heaven in general. The world has perhaps a desire for heaven in general. But their concept of this place is much like their concept of their favorite vacation spot, somewhere where there is no work, where there are people who wait on them hand and foot, where everything is free, the air is clear, the water is nice to swim in, the sun is warm, not too hot, and they don't have a care in the world. But for the Christian, we're not looking forward to going to our favorite vacation spot, right? We're looking forward to see Jesus. Paul makes this point more emphatic by the two titles by which Jesus is named in the verse. The first is that of Savior. Jesus is the one who has died for us. We already read Hebrews 9.28 that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In that section of Hebrews, the offering of Jesus as a sacrifice is being compared to the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices. They were ultimately ineffective because they had to be offered over and over again, year after year. Even those who made the sacrifices, the priests, had to change regularly because they were men and they just simply died, so they couldn't continue. But the sacrifice of Jesus was offered once on the cross, and that sacrifice was completely sufficient to take away our sins. It says in Hebrews, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He having been offered, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, set at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And in another place it says of Jesus that he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. To know Jesus as your Savior is the prerequisite for heavenly citizenship. There is no other. 
You must know and possess the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, as Paul says earlier in chapter 3. And the focus of that faith is on none other than Jesus. By faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven on the basis of the offering of his body on the cross. His righteousness and the eternal life due to righteous living is given to you. And by virtue of this, heavenly citizenship is granted immediately. We who have believed have been saved by the offering of the body of Jesus. He is our Savior and there is no other. But we also shall be saved at his second coming. Again, Hebrews 9.28, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We'll get back to that a little bit later. The point is that for us, for the believer, Jesus, our Savior, is the most important person in all the cosmos. He is for us salvation. He is life. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if Jesus were not going to be there. That is the heartbeat of every true citizen of heaven, every true believer. Not only is he Savior, he's also Lord. Again, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. Every Roman citizen would have confessed Caesar as both Savior and Lord, for Caesar was the victor who brought peace, the head of state, the supreme ruler of the Roman government and its citizens. As American citizens, we are subject to our government, which is ultimately by the people. However, for the Christian, there is only one Savior and there is only one Lord, King Jesus. Paul has just spent a significant amount of time in chapter 2 highlighting the exaltation of Jesus, even setting him forth as an example of humility. Why was the sacrifice of his life so effective in taking away our sins? Why does it say in Matthew that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth? Why is he beloved of the Father? Why is Jesus highly exalted among the people of God? On Philippians 2, the text says that Jesus humbled himself in obedience to the Father, and thus the Father gave him the prize of being highly exalted above all. Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His sacrifice was thus so effective because of his perfect obedience to his father. Perfect obedience to the will of God. He lived a perfect, holy, and righteous life. So much so that when the Pharisees came to accuse him, he looks them square in the eye and he says to them, Which of you convicts me of sin? That's John chapter 8. Jesus says, Which of you actually can, who can bring a charge against me? And they had no response. Because he always lived to do the will of God. Even going to death on a criminal's cross. That is why he was such a perfect sacrifice. Because he was spotless. He was without blame. He was without sin. His blood was fully sufficient to pay for all of our sins. And thus the Father, out of love for his beloved Son, highly exalted him above all. When we see outrageous acts of sin and wickedness in the world, we look around and we think, what in the world is going on? What is happening? What is the world coming to? The world is not out of control. And this is what the world is coming to. 
The history of mankind is all headed in this direction to this one final act where Jesus is finally hailed and lauded by all as Lord. Every knee, whether it needs to be broken or whether it bows on its own, will bow before him and every tongue will speak and confess that he is Lord and that there is no other. Until that day, we proclaim him as his ambassadors. We announce his salvation. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. We proclaim his salvation. We also proclaim his coming. I love Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I mean, what do the nations really desire? They desire righteous leadership, do they not? They desire to have leaders who shepherd them, care for them, love them, who live in a way that is exemplary and who rule with equity. There isn't a man on the face of the whole earth who meets that criteria, save Jesus, when he returns. Jesus is the hope of the nations. Again, the Lord abides forever, Psalm 9, 8. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Do you think the nations can benefit from a message of hope like this? That a leader will come who will rule righteously, judge fairly, and bring peace? I mean, Isaiah calls him the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. We have this message You proclaim that as a part of your evangelistic message to the nations around us. Jesus is the righteous one, the righteous ruler the world is looking for, and he is coming. We do not, as the world, look to our governing authorities for salvation or hope. To that end, we do not become faint-hearted or despair when the official that we voted for doesn't make it into office. But we do look forward and hope to the day, the day of the Lord Jesus when he will among the nations make righteousness dwell, when he will make peace to flow like a river, and when the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As citizen of heaven, we confess Jesus as Lord today and we proclaim his coming righteous rule. The invitation to become a citizen of the kingdom is open to all. It's open to you today if you have not come to him. Do not harden your hearts. Humble yourselves before him. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. While his coming is a message of hope for the believer, for those who fail to submit to him now, those who fail to trust now, there is no hope later. There is only a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume his adversaries. Let that not be you. Come to faith in Christ today. Now, I made a distinction earlier when I said we have been saved by Jesus and we shall be saved. 
I mentioned that I would get back to that thought in a moment. We find the reason for that distinction in verse 21 of chapter 3. Look again at the text. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, our first point was that as citizens of heaven, we look forward to the return of our king. Our second is that as citizens of heaven, we look forward to the redemption of our king. Now, some of this talk about, the, uh, about Jesus returning might get some of your minds to working over all the various end times um, models and schemes that there are. We're not going to get into any of that this morning. If you have a question about it, you want to talk about it, wait till Pastor Chris returns. focus of this passage is just on the redemption that Jesus is going to bring to us, so that's where we're going to stay. But again, why did I say we shall be saved? Why do I say we are looking forward to redemption? We know that in Christ, God has redeemed us from our sin debt. Paul refers to this as our redemption in Ephesians chapter 1. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He purchased us with the blood of Christ, such that now in Christ, again, those who have been granted heavenly citizenship no longer owe the debt of sin. It has been paid in full. But we also await redemption. Same passage in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Also, Romans chapter 8, verse 23, we having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In theology, we have a phrase, already not yet, and certainly that applies here. We already have redemption, and yet we await the coming of redemption. Well, what exactly are we looking forward to in this last redemption? Well, death is perhaps our greatest enemy, at least it feels that way. Cancer, other forms of disease, war, famine, old age, and the ensuing weaknesses of our bodies would be all the more bearable if death were not a present reality. Those things tend to weaken us, but more than that, they tend to force us to reckon with our mortality. Ultimately, death is a product of a failure of our bodies on some level. Whether, again, through disease or disaster, aging or some accident, our bodies will fail us. It doesn't really do us any justice that we don't really talk about this much in church. right? We talk about all kinds of things in church. We talk about immorality, abstaining from immorality. We talk about loving one another. But we don't often talk about the reality of death and the comfort that we should take in God's provision of eternal life. But if the Lord tarries, death will come to all of us. Even besides that, it affects all of us through our various relations, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, grandparents, friends, neighbors, fellow church members, co-workers. Death is a separation of us from one another. And this great malady affects all of us, every single human being. And yet for the believer above all other men, there is hope. For the redemption that awaits us is the redemption of our physical bodies. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. 
We all know what it means to transform something. You're changing it from one form to another. The word for transform here is where we get our word schematic. We think about schematic diagrams of electrical cables and other wiring that shows you how something is made up. It's its constitution, its structure, its internal nature. The emphasis here is that the scheme of our body will be transformed from its humble state into the glorious state of Jesus' body. The humble state of our body is also not hard to understand, right? Our bodies are, as we stated, subject to death. They are weak. They are frail. They're subject to disease and distress. You know, cars used to be made up of more solid material. Now they're made up of, like, plexiglass and whatever else they end up putting in there. And we know that when we get into an accident, everything immediately just kind of crumbles together. It's like us, right? We know that and we bear that burden daily. Sometimes for the believer, the burden of our weakness is intensified in our hearts because we know that there's something better for us. I mentioned Romans 8 earlier. There Paul talks about our groaning as we await our final redemption. He talks about it also in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And as much as having put it on, we will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Many of our brothers and sisters get to this point toward the end of their lives, particularly if they've suffered much due to some illness or incident. They groan and they long to be clothed with immortality. My spiritual father died in January of this year. He'd gone a number of years in stage four of cancer. Um, His life was prolonged with some different experimental medicines that the VA uh, paid for on his behalf. What eventually took him was the flu. The flu. He would have been 78 in February, but his body had grown weak and tired from treatment, and he simply couldn't get over it. One of his sons who was there with him related that he got to a certain point where he just seemed to, I mean, he couldn't really communicate very much, but he just kind of beckoned them just to let him go because he was tired and he was done. When he was alive, he often referred back to what was said about Abraham at the end of his life, that he'd lived a long, full life and was satisfied with years. He said, I've lived a long, full life and I'm satisfied with years. So I know he was ready. We miss him. His wife sorely misses him, but we're also glad for him. What's interesting is that this verse in Philippians 3.21 is intended to continue the contrast between the way the citizens of heaven think about their bodies and the way the enemies of the cross of Christ think about their bodies. The enemies of the cross of Christ rage against the weakness. They ignore it. They do not speak of it. They hide their weaknesses with makeup, with procedures to nip and tuck. With the time, excessive procedures to try to cultivate a more youthful appearance, even though you can't really turn back the clock. Paul says of them, their God is their appetite. They still feel the continual urgings of their physical appetites, thus refuse to let go of this mortal body. They are convinced that this is all there is. Thus they must do all they can to maintain their bodies for as long as they can, so they can experience as much pleasure as they can. But that's not us. Because we know that there is something better for us. And while we do what we can to take care of our bodies as good stewards of these gifts, we also know that our body in this humble state is not the end. Thus, we do not need to cling to it. 
Again, he will transform the bodies of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That term for humble is set in opposition to the term glory. If we know what it means that we have bodies in a humble state, we know what it means that they will be in a state of glory. In theology, we use this term glorification to describe that process. We will be glorified when our physical bodies are transformed into the likeness of Jesus' physical body as it is today. Today he sits in heaven, not in the weakness of flesh, the flesh that he had when he walked the earth during his first coming. That body was not fit for heaven. It was fit for the cross, but it wasn't fit for heaven. His body now is different. It is better. It was converted to be made suitable for his heavenly abode. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. We may think of the brilliance that shone from him on the Mount of Transfiguration where it says in Matthew 17 that his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white light. Now the process of glorification is not less than that, but it's certainly more. It's not just about shining in light. It's about having a qualitatively better body. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. These bodies which are perishable shall be raised imperishable. These bodies which are dishonorable shall be raised in glory. These bodies which are sown in weakness shall be raised in power. Sown as a natural body, but raised as a spiritual body. And death will finally be swallowed up in victory. Our glorified bodies will never perish, but shall clothe us eternally. They will never suffer dishonor, but will share in his glory. No disease or sickness shall ever touch it. They will never weaken, but will be raised in power. You will never tire, never need sleep, never need to rest ever again. They will be raised as a spiritual body. This doesn't mean that they will not be physical. They will be physical, but they will be a redeemed, higher quality physical body. 2.0, as it were. And death will never have part with you again. We will all be changed into his likeness. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. Now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. This is the privilege of every citizen of heaven being made into the likeness of the glory and strength of our king. The God-man Jesus walked about in this life in the weakness of flesh as we do daily, and yet he was raised in power. As he shared in the weakness of our flesh, so we also shall share in the power of his resurrected body. This is the full redemption we eagerly look forward to from the hands of Jesus himself. Now we look forward to that day, though at times we will still groan. We groan because we suffer physically. We grow weary. We get sick. We have prolonged ailments that plague us today. We have doctor's appointments where we're poked and prodded. And at times we simply grow tired of being sick and tired all the time. Moreover, we groan as we see our loved ones suffer. Those who are or who have been caregivers bear the burden of seeing those whom you love struggle with their health. You feel powerless. You feel weak. You feel as though you failed them because you want to make it better but can't. We groan as we see our loved ones pass on this, from this life to the next. 
We have more to say, more to do, but we know that we cannot any longer with them. There's a new normal that we now have to bear of life without them. What do we say to these things? How can we bear it? I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 briefly. I think what Paul says there is really helpful. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul is talking about in this chapter his ministry of proclaiming the gospel, his ministry as an apostle, and he's talking about all the difficulty that he endured. He even talks about always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. And they felt that way sometimes because of all the persecution they endured. Listen to what he says, First, uh, Second Corinthians four sixteen. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How do we bear it? How do we not lose heart? Paul says we know that the outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed day by day, and that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Remember that God is presently at work in you even through these trials, through the difficulty. He has begun the work of salvation, and even now through your suffering, he's working patience and a greater sense of dependence upon him through your suffering. And not only that, but as he brings you through such trial and suffering and you experience comfort from him, you are made ready to provide and to encourage others who go through difficulties and distress. Paul made that point earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, that the comfort that we experience, we're able to use to be a blessing and encouragement to someone else. Often when people suffer, I notice this especially for those who are getting older, the temptation is to think that there's nothing left for you to do, nothing left to offer. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. The greatest thing you have to offer, something that no one else, not the young people, that everyone in every church in America is focusing on the young people, but you, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who have lived long in this life, those of you who have walked long with Christ, you have such a great treasure for the church of the wisdom and experience and knowledge that God has given to you. I referred earlier to my spiritual father. He's my spiritual father, not because I came through faith through his, uh, his ministry. You know, Paul talks about that with his relationship to Timothy but because of the time and attention and care and energy that he gave to me and my family. Because they talked to us. They shared of their life and ministry with us. They told us of the trials and distresses that they went through and how God carried them through those things. <clears throat> they were honest with us. They provided guidance and encouragement when we needed it. And you guys can do the same. Find someone to pour into. Find someone to share your life with so that they might be blessed and encouraged. Again, how do we bear up under trial so that we do not lose heart? Know that God is still working you, but also look to the future. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, Paul says. 
Remember, this is not the end. You feel like it's the end when you're struggling. But remember, this is not the end. Make a regular habit at gazing long at the promise of full redemption, the promise of finally seeing the face of Jesus, the promise of being reunited with those who have gone on before. Remind yourself that in that day there will be no more pain, sorrow, sickness, or trial for you. Remember that the next time you see your loved one, it will not be in the weakness of their flesh. They will not be sick. They will not be hooked up to wires or cords in a hospital. They will not be lifeless in a casket, but they will be raised in power and glory. Look back at Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. What confidence do we have? How do we have such confidence in this truth? He says that Jesus is going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. Jesus has power to subject all things to himself. The all things means just that. All things. Everything. Perhaps this is one final dig at the Caesar of Rome. The Caesar would boast of having subjugated the entire known world of men. Christ has the power to bring all things into subjection. All nations, all peoples, all planets, all stars, all principalities, all powers, even death itself. Jesus will bring all things into subjection. Because we know this is true. We also know that he's able to provide this final redemptive act for us to transform our humble bodies into conformity with the state of his glorified body. That's why this promise is for the citizens of heaven. It's only for those who have faith in him. If you do not believe that he is Savior, if you do not believe that he is sovereign Lord with all authority in heaven and on earth, how can you possibly believe that he has the power to grant you this final redemptive blessing? But we do believe, we do know, we are convinced that he is able to perform this and more for our good and his glory. I'll leave you with this quote. It simply, it simply cannot be said any better than that. Someone's reflecting on this passage. It simply cannot be said any better than that for them or for us. This passage reminds us that despite appearances often to the contrary, God is in control that our salvation is not just for today but forever, that Christ is coming again, and that at his coming we will inherit the final glory that belongs to Christ alone and to those who are his. It means the final subjugation of all the powers to him as well, especially those responsible for the present affliction of God's people. With Paul, we would do well not merely to await the end, but eagerly press on toward the goal, since the final prize is but the consummation of what God has already accomplished through the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, end quote. Again, in this passage for this morning, Paul says, in essence, get your minds out of the earth and into heaven. As he says in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Follow my example, Paul says, and not the world's. Rejoice that you are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, that you have the privilege of a sure hope that our king shall return for us. He will not leave us orphans. And that when he comes, he will bring that final redemption for us. Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus is coming. That is the believer's greatest hope. May that be yours this morning. Pray with me. 
Our Father, again, we thank you for this morning and thank you for your word, which is true, which again sanctifies us. Thank you for the blessed hope that we have. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to rejoice and to meditate in this hope, not just this day, but throughout this week and as we continue our lives. In Christ's name, amen.